Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Classical Queer Podcast. It doesn't seem that long ago, Jacob and I were talking about starting this podcast and wondering if we would have any listeners or anyone to talk to. Luckily, our wildest fears didn't come true. So thanks to everyone who's been on the programme and for their contributions, and of course to you, the listener. Now for our first anniversary, we welcome to the show musician, composer and all-around artist Sarah McCabe. Sarah hails from Canada, but is most often seen these days in London. Also known as Hendra, Sarah's first album is due out soon. Jacob and I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, welcome, Sam McCabe. We are so excited to have you here today uh, on the podcast. We're joined by the wonderful Sarah McCabe, who is right now in Ontario, but is normally London-based uh, and is doing a PhD at Guildhall, correct? Guildhall? Yes. Guildhall and uh, focused on, um, uh, what would you, uh, it's in your write-up there. Um, <laughs> Queer open mics is the kind of open mics, but but queer queer specific open mics and and kind of live performance. And uh, the the neat thing that I can't wait to talk about is that it uh, encompasses so many different uh, genres and versions of performance and your own practice as a performer is is kind of uh, draws from so many different areas. And uh, I'm so thrilled we get to listen to your music and talk to you about what you do. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here to chat to you both today. Yeah, thank you for for joining us. We uh, for for people listening, uh, we uh, were connected through uh, some mutual friends. Uh, as it goes with uh, Canada and especially Nova Scotia, uh, there were a few people we knew in common, and uh, our, our mutual friend India Gailey, who's a cellist, uh, connected us and, and suggested that we should talk. And so here we are. We get this opportunity to. Uh, to chat about music and to chat about life and uh, chat about kind of our, our mutual past. And Sammy has the Halifax connections as well. So Sammy is oh, also awesome. um, not, uh, not completely disconnected from Halifax either. Yeah. <laughs> Halifax, England, that is, I think. <laughs> <laughs> still counts. It still counts. Yeah. Um, so what we'd like to, to usually do is just kind of start with a bit of a bio. Um, and so if you could just tell us a bit about your background and how you arrived where you have arrived to and uh, all those things. It can be as like a non-academic-y, non-performance-y uh, as you like, and it can be whatever version of uh, history. Some people love their like academic <laughs> bio. Some people like their like personal yeah. bio. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, again, thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. Um, yeah. So I'm Sarah. Um, I also use Hendra as a stage name. Uh, more on that later. Um, and uh, my pronouns are she, her, but uh, if people use they, them, I won't mind as well. So I am from uh, what's now called Bowmanville, Ontario, um, but it's uh, situated within the traditional and treaty territory of the Mississaugas and Chippewas of the Anishinaabek. Um, and 
I lived here most of my life until 18, and then I moved to Nova Scotia. I went to Acadia University uh, as a uh, very serious classical violinist, and that lasted about six months, <laughs> into which I kind of transitioned into a lot of other musical performance arty stuff, then moved to London, UK. Uh, and I guess how I would best describe myself is a creator of stuff. Uh, I write and I uh, compose and I play and perform what I write and compose and I perform other people's works as well. I mostly perform on viola and voice. My big thing is singing and playing uh, viola uh, and at the same time. So yeah, that's that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. Lots of different stuff over uh, over the years, but I uh, now I'm mostly focused on kind of this songwriting, uh, singing viola life. <laughs> we, like, we like stuff, lots of yeah, stuff. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I try not to pigeonhole myself too much. You know, I just I do I do a lot of different stuff. I'm a researcher as well, kind of accidentally. So. And if there's something we we found through this podcast, it's that uh, queer musicians, queer performers, love to uh, have their fingers in many different pies. It's a yeah. it's a, a trait of ours to not pigeonhole into to one uh, very generic path. Uh, so this this all checks out. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> now, one one thing that came up when we were looking through some of your music and some of your performances is the great variety of it, um, and. You know, I, I must be when I looked at it, I, I, I certainly wouldn't pigeonhole you as just a musician. You seem to have such a variety of things that you do. Is there any of them which you sort of like tend to gravitate towards or, or, or do you find them all just so interesting that you have to go down all routes at once? <laughs> I've definitely had periods uh, of my life when I've been doing a lot of different things at the same time. And then I go through periods uh, where I kind of concentrate on one thing or another. But yeah, I guess the two big things that I feel uh, the most gravitated towards are uh, my songwriting. Uh, and my big uh, exciting project right now is that I'm uh, working on my first album, which will be out later this year, hopefully. It's been delayed by COVID, but uh, you know, so is everything. And performance art in many different ways. I love acting and I love weird stuff. And if I can play the viola and sing or yell or wear weird costumes uh, while I'm uh, while I'm performing, it that just fills me with great joy. <laughs> Which feels very open mic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite an interesting combination. I mean, I mean, playing the viola and also singing at the same time. And also, as you say, you know, making, I, I don't want to use weird sounds, different sounds. Oh, yeah. Weird sounds are great. Screaming and, and also the, the acting part of it. I mean, that's quite a, quite a complicated set of things all to do in one go. You know, I, I guess. So, so is it very, do you find it very, um, I mean, it doesn't come over as being planned. I mean, is that, it, it seems like there's a lot of, you know, sort of um, ad hoc or, or, or sort of like... Improv. Yeah, improv. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, improv is a big part of my life and has been ever since I was an undergrad when I got to 
um, experience it for the first time through some amazing teachers. Uh, Norm Adams, we were just talking about earlier, Jacob and I both know. Uh, and I, I bring that to my songwriting as well. I think that there's a a sense of freedom that I get when I'm able to be on stage and can allow myself to take my songs in different directions, different forms. Even there's a large part of the album that is uh, improvisation and that it's woven in with all of the things that have been pre-composed and, and, and pre-written. Most of my shows that I do also include um, large sex sections of improv. Sorry, large sections of improvisation. So, yeah, it's 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 kind of a way of life for me. I think it's kind of how I live in my personal life as well. I just kind of go, well, all right, what's the next thing? Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> I mean, it's funny the number of like improvers I know, uh, and I I uh, I don't know if it's a positive or, 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 but I know many, uh, we all tend to kind of have that, uh, ethos in life of taking that, the improv world into, uh, on, on non-musical things. And you just try it out, you test, you see what feels good, sounds good, uh, and, and move through, uh, do you, do you recognize like a point when you, uh, started doing that and you could like pinpoint it? Was it like at Acadia? Was it, afterwards there were definitely different points throughout my life that i think took me in different directions definitely acadia was one of them uh, i've started playing viola i started doing new music and then when i was in london i was able to really work with a lot of, uh, sorry, when I moved to London and started at Guildhall in 2016, I was able to meet a lot of amazing composers and uh, collaborators, start working with them. And I think a big turning point for me was actually my, my grad recital from Guildhall. Uh, I was supposed to be playing a contemporary Canadian piece that a friend was writing me uh, that didn't get finished. So maybe two or three weeks before my grad recital, I was a, a piece short. And I found this piece by a Canadian composer called Bellatrix. And that piece had all this screaming and singing in it. And I had really been struggling to find my path in the previous months beforehand. Uh, I couldn't I was feeling a bit hemmed in, even though Guildhall is an amazing forward-thinking conservatoire. I was trying to figure out uh, what my path was going to be and whether I wanted to keep focusing on classical music or really start creating myself full-time. And getting up on the stage and screaming uh, and stomping around and singing while playing uh, and getting amazing feedback from all the classical music judges made me realize, okay, I can express myself in this way and people are going to find it uh, authentic and real and fascinating. And from that point on, I pretty much just did all new music. I started writing a lot more. I started working with sound art a lot more and kind of it it i think that that moment of cathartic release definitely took my musical journey in a 
different direction for sure. Hmm. Is this around, I'm going to guess maybe that's around the same time you started going to open mics uh, and started experiencing that world of, uh, that version and world of performance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It was also around the time that I hosted this amazing open mic uh, at Guildhall called Ina Kleine Queer Music. And it was this similar sense of trying to find myself, um, find and explore my queerness, because I had recently... Uh, just kind of in the past year had fully come out to myself. I'd been questioning my sexuality for a long time, but hadn't really found the space to uh, accept it in myself, if that makes sense. And so uh, Ina Kleine Queer Music was an amazing turning point where I felt like I could merge the worlds Mm -hmm. of my playing, my uh, performance hosting, acting and also creating a space within a traditional kind of classical uh, world for other people to explore their art and sexuality in what felt like a very authentic way. So that was, yeah, that all happened within the same couple months. And I think that those took me into a, uh, a different space with my art making. I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, a lot of people that we've talked to on the show and also from personal experience and friends, it seems to be quite a common theme that these things sort of coincide. You do something in a professional life and that, and, and at the same time, your personal life comes into focus and, and it all sort of gels in one particular event or, or a particular time or a particular thing you do. And, and that sort of is the, is the changeover between one period of life and another period. And I think that kind of, kind of seems to happen to a lot of people. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I would definitely say that was the case for me. Yeah. Do you, do you, uh, with improv, the thing that's always struck me with improv, and I'm not a very, improv type of person at all is is you know you're on stage and you're improvising stuff and that do you ever get to the stage and you suddenly go oh no I've no idea what to do now or, or do you ever or, or do, does that never happen I'm just kind of curious because that's kind of the, the 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 person who plans everything's worst nightmare is being on stage and you're suddenly there and you go I don't know where to go next and I kind of I just kind of get your, your take on that I have the opposite, actually. I've always been a very good performer. I think I have a, uh, whatever it is, a very natural inclination to just get on stage and do the thing. Before I get on the stage, I worry. I think about how am I going to fill the time? What if I don't remember the lyrics? And something happens when I'm in that performance space that allows me the freedom of exploring, making mistakes, trying new things. And somehow it all seems to work out most of the time. I've had moments where I've started songs in the wrong key and I have no (laughs) idea where I'm going with it. And I just kind of do what I can and it works out. And, and for me, that is, I think I, I, I love that fear there's that fear or I don't know if it's a, it's fear, but it's that, that moment of committing to something and choosing to explore it. I love that feeling. 
Whereas the feelings of fear that I experienced in the practice room on, uh, while doing music that involved very intense technical, uh, virtuosic practice, that was a fear based in anxiety and fear based in a, a worry of not being good enough. So yeah, I'll take I'll take the improv over uh, over Pagnini any day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, good on the people who who love that. I I find it an incredibly uh, admirable trait. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, classical music in the traditional canon sense, and I, I think have always had a little bit of a mismatched mm. relationship, partially, I think, because I had an diagnosed ADHD, which made it very difficult for me to spend the long hours in a practice room. Uh, but on stage, I just feel myself. I, I get a feeling Paganini would probably have agreed with you and thought that improv was probably better than following somebody else's thing. Because I, I suspect, you know, when you look at a lot of the classical composers, they improvised all the time, you know, and, and, and a lot of what we do now just sort of eliminates that sort of in the spur of the moment stuff. So I, I kind of kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should listen to one of your pieces now that we've we've talked about um uh, kind of how you approach uh, creation and, and uh, improv and in your own on your own works. Um, we hadn't picked a, an order necessarily, but I think uh, for me one of the the ones that I uh, found really compelling was "Real Fake Birds," and listening to um, that one first might be a, a great intro into uh, your practice. And so let's listen to "Real Fake Birds." setting. Birds. Adjust the dials. And the auto birds will come in at different lengths. Once they enter, they will stay. ground. Leaves. Golden leaves. Shattered. And the sun goes down early now.
Hendra, also known as Sarah McCabe. She co-developed this performance with the AI, and she's here to answer a few questions about its uh, creation. The algorithm uh, mimics a flock of birds, uh, the way they fly, the way they all are going in the same direction. So the idea is that you put in a sound. The sounds that you put in will be then interpreted by the birds and spit back out at you at random times and irregular intervals. So it's like working with a, a looper that has a mind of its own. How does it change the process for you? When you collaborate and improvise with other people, there are unspoken ways of communicating with them as you perform. The way you look at somebody, the way that you lead into um, a, a phrase, um, whereas the AI uh, was not able to interpret any body language. Some people think in words and concepts. What do you think an AI would think in? I think there's, there's so, so much scope for the imagination there. I just keep thinking about the book, um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And all the amazing nights and sounds that humans could not imagine because of the world that we live in. So I think they could dream and think in untold mysteries. What don't we know about brains? I still don't really understand what What's going on up there? What's going on up there? How the brain works. But I'm learning to love it. I think maybe the human brain and artificial intelligence are more alike than we like to think. AI is learning from us. Do you think there's any potential dangers in humanity being the teacher of AI? Humans are unreliable narrators. Unreliable narrators. The stories that we tell are all our own version of what happened. Unreliable. So as we try to teach AI how to create their own truths, 
we're teaching them something that's fundamentally flawed and something that's not perfect fundamentally flawed. So to see how they take that in and learn and grow with it will be really interesting. How will AI change our thinking and understanding? I think as AI grows and learns, we will grow and learn with it. Um, there have been already so many advances in the worlds of chess and Go that AI has AI has pushed the players and will continue to push humans to grow and create. Because uh, one thing I know about humans is that we are competitive. And I think that the more AI grows and creates, the more humans will continually try to outcreate it. Do you think AI can love? I love you. So, having having listened to it, uh, can you can you tell us about how you uh, wrote, performed? How how did Real Fake Birds come about? So Real Fake Birds is a collaboration with my amazing director, filmographer Jasper Wirtanen, and uh, my partner Liam Elliott. So it's a duet with uh, a program, a looper, a sentient looper that uh, is based on the algorithms of how flocks of birds fly. So you play with this looper, you... Uh, feed music, sound, whatever you want into it. And it chooses what it's going to loop back at you and when it's going to loop back at you. So it's a bit like playing with this unreliable mind, uh, a duet partner that does whatever it wants. And so we created this this piece that is also a short film uh, uh, looking at agency and and uh, how you can create in ways that um, you don't have total control in, which I think really sits at the heart of most of what I do. And we've also taken that idea and used it in a concert uh, that I, well, we premiered this concert in Halifax in January with uh, Scotia Festival of Music and Open Waters Festival using the footage and the music from Real Fake Birds to look at our brains as unreliable narrators. And this is uh, kind of an evolving concept and some of the sounds and the background uh, noises from Real Fake Birds will be making its way into my album. And the album and the concert as it evolves is really looking at this this concept of working with, fighting against, uh, loving um, our brains and the things that they do that we can't control. Like I mentioned before, I was diagnosed with ADHD, uh, I guess just over a year and a half ago, as well as dyspraxia, uh, which is a um, motor function balance uh, memory, uh, neurodiversity, and it's been an interesting journey for me to reconcile these diagnoses with what I've experienced in my life and how to move forward, how to learn, how to interact with my brain uh, now that I understand it better, Um, as well as 
learning how to love it and learning how to love myself in this new light. And uh, as I've been exploring that, I've had quite a few family members experience uh, traumatic brain injuries. Uh, so it's been a interesting, difficult, beautiful journey to think about all of these brain-related things. And I've been writing songs and music about this over the past couple years, and this will all be uh, incorporated into my new album, which I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. I, I love this idea of using um, algorithms to, to, to generate some of this. I kind of really like this idea. And it's kind of a bit like this sort of, you know, class of generative music, I guess, is, is, is very similar to that. And uh, I find that fascinating how, because it brings up so many questions about, you know, uh, machines and, and intelligence and, and all of that and, and ourselves. And it, it's, uh, and I find that whole questioning of that sort of balance really, really interesting and exciting. Yeah, I, I've been really enjoying exploring it. It's been fun as well as um, a healing process as well. It's been uh, great. There's been a lot of joy in it. And uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited for this album to come out and to be able to perform the, the concert and the album for people and hear their reactions so far. Everything has been really positive and I've had a lot of people uh, say they've been really uh, moved by the way the music tells the stories that I'm trying to tell, and and I'm I couldn't be happier with that. So, did I read somewhere that that you kind of had um, um, uh, Philip K. Dick's book, uh, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" in your minds when you were when you were doing this? I seem to remember. It's because because we're going to get on science fiction here, Jake. If you can you can sleep for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it you know when when playing with uh an you know an algorithm that has a mind of its own it 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 brought you know it brought up a lot of really interesting uh thoughts about how how this music can develop in the in the future. Uh, part of this interview at the end of the real fake birds movie is uh talking about how um you know the you know the potential not dangers but you know how 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 will computers and how will the you know ai's develop and whether humans need to be worried about them out creating us and my thought is that humans are very competitive and that we don't know what uh you know, the technology dreams, uh, whether they dream of electric sheep, whether they dream in binary code, but whatever uh, computers come up with, humans will always try to outcreate them or, uh, you know, compete against them. So I, I, I'm excited about the future of technology and uh, cr continuing to create with it because it, I think it could push us to really interesting greater heights. 
yeah, it's kind, it's kind of interesting, this, you know, this balance between whether you see the future of these machines as being very dystopian and causing us all lots of problems or being these fantastic things which enable, you know, wonderful creations and enabling us to live lives that are much better to the ones we live now. So it's kind of this balance, I guess, which we uh, which you're kind of exploring here is is where are we going with this future? Oh, yeah, my uh, flatmates and I have had several very intense uh, dinner table conversations about uh, whether we think it's a utopic or a dystopic uh, future. So, yeah, I was when I was making some notes of this, I started writing down all oh, we can talk about the Turing test, Descartes and all kinds of things. And <laughs> uh, there's, there's a really great lot of dinner talk that could go on talking about this. But it, it's, it's a really, um, uh, you know, I think quite exciting piece of music using this type of AI in your music to to actually you know work against or work with. I think that's kind of kind of exciting because you, you're getting something back that you're not quite sure how it's going to work back. I think that's that's really really fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, I I I really love doing it, and I you know there's definitely some of that in my album as well. There's improvisation from me, and then there's improvisation from me plus the birds, you know, as I uh, call them affectionately. So yeah, there's, it's a kind of a nice feeling to know that, uh, you know, this, the, you know, my album and all the things that I do uh, are mine, but they're also not entirely mine. They, they belong to something else as well. So it's really interesting. Hmm. Well, we should listen to another one. We should listen to, uh, and kind of picking at random, but uh, Magnolia's Pentamic um, seems Maybe. to me like a, a good one. But yeah, if you have suggestions on another or one. Or adulthood, yeah. I mean, adulthood's the kind of, uh, yeah, either either is good. Well, let's do adulthood. Let's do yeah. adulthood let's do next. Okay. Sounds yeah. good. Okay. Sacred mission to repaint our faded kitchen. 
Um, so uh, same question, kind of tell us, tell us about adulthood. Tell us about, uh, how, how this one comes about. Well, adulthood really, uh, grows on this idea that I was talking about before, um, about really thinking about brains and then thinking about family and also just thinking about life and how, I guess adulthood is probably one of my most personal songs in that it came from this sense of trying to live and create a life and move forward and at the same time deal with all of the things happening. So it's a very cheerful song at the same time as being quite grim. I don't know. I mean, the, the music in itself is cheerful. The lyrics can be a bit grim, but it, it was a way for me to reconcile this idea of, of being, being in a space that is constantly fluctuating and still trying to find some measure of growth from it. Mm. I, I, when I listen to this, I mean, I, I kind of found it um, sad. I mean, I, I think the mu- it reminded me of, uh, not in musically, but in terms of the, 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 the sort of feeling of like sad country music. I kind of, you know, the music could be quite uplifting, but the lyrics are so sort of sad. And, and, and I got this feeling of, of like, you know, as you say, growing up in, in where, where things, terrible things are happening in parallel to this. And, and this sort of tension of not wanting to grow up, but you have to grow up. Is that, is that and being pulled in t- kind of two directions? Yeah, for sure. That's, that's exactly how I was feeling. And it was also written as a, a love letter to my current flat and my family. Uh, you know, I say family in the queer sense because uh, I live with a, uh, kind of rotating cast of queer creators in this uh, very broken house in London, um, as well as being a love letter to my family, because at the same time as I was living there, I was, you know, experiencing quite quite a lot of uh, emotional um, moments with uh, family health problems, and seeing the people that I love uh, in in my flat uh, experience very similar. Uh, traumatic moments with their families. So during this time, it felt like we really relied on each other to create and hold on to each other, as well as make a home. Uh, And that's, you know, a lot of the the metaphors used in the song are, are drawn from real life, you know, just trying to go grow a garden uh, while absorbing terrible news, painting a kitchen to distract yourself, uh, you know, holding on to the things that are good while working through the things that are bad. Yeah, I think a lot, I think this is kind of like a, uh, I don't know, is it a metaphor for, for a lot of how we, like a lot of us feel. I, I like the house idea. That's kind of really nice. I mean, you know, you're trying to create a future yet you've got the, you know, I don't know, I, I, I mean, I remember when I was young growing up, you lived in bad house after bad house. You were trying to paint them and make them yeah. livable in and there's the water's pouring in. Meanwhile, oh, yeah. you know, your, your, your parent, you know, my, my, 
somebody's dying or somebody finds out they got a terminal disease or there's something else terrible, a war in the world, and, and you're trying to create while the world is destroying around you. And I guess that's kind of a, a really, you know, this, this house is your protective shell, I guess. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it feels weird and sometimes selfish to say, okay, no, I'm going to take the day and, you know, paint my kitchen uh, after I've heard this, you know, terrible thing that's happened. But for me, I, I find it, it's a way to work through because you're just, you're allowing yourself space, time, and you're allowing yourself to create. Or, uh, you know, I allow myself to, to use that as a space to create something good. Mm-hmm. And using creation as, as a, a means of processing is such a, I mean, it's, it's a gift that artists have the ability to do. I mean, and everyone processes in different ways, but I, I count myself so lucky that uh, I have a method of processing intense uh, things that are happening at any given time. Uh, that also has a, a wonderful output sometimes, you know, and sometimes it's painting a room. It's, it, sometimes it's writing a song. Sometimes it's performing. Um, but I, every time I, I think I encounter an artist who's uh, doing that or using their skills and talent and tools, uh, or any time I uh, am able to do it, I think one of the things I think is is for somebody who doesn't have a love of art or doesn't have a practice or doesn't have a method of working through that or doesn't have uh, a kitchen to paint or doesn't have a, a whatever, how do you work through that? How do you process? How do you, uh, and maybe, maybe the answer is they don't, <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's the short answer, but, or maybe it's just an entirely different way of processing that I'm not uh, aware of. I think that's what I mean. I, I, you know, I always say I'm I'm not artistically or musically minded, particularly, you know, scientist by training and this kind of thing. And and I think you work through it in a different way. You still work through it, but you do a task that's something you know that 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 fits your your thing. So, you know, I know somebody who goes off and does maths puzzles, you know, mm. and sits there solving maths puzzles all the time. And that's the way they distract themselves. They don't, they don't write music or they don't write something else. They go and do that. And I think everybody has their distraction. As long as it, I think the problem comes when you don't have that distraction is the mm. problem. If you, if you're so focused on something that you don't have this thing to go and do, I think that's, that, that for me is, uh, is where I think the problems occur. Wow. That's pretty deep, isn't it? I think we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're going deep today. Yeah, maybe we put it to uh, to like mm. fun costumes and open mics. Maybe maybe that's sure. a good. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to, we need a piece of we need it. We need something to get us in a more relaxed, enjoyable mood. What what have we got? On the, what have we got on the menu for that? Um, well, uh, yeah, we could definitely talk a bit more about the the wacky side of the performance art stuff that I do, yes. and um, we could definitely listen to the. Uh, the excerpt from four folk songs or five folk yes. songs from an alternate dimension. Uh, that will definitely get us wacky. That will definitely get yeah. us some wacky. I think. Well, let's do that. Let's listen to that. Hi there. Thank you for downloading and installing the beta version of five folk songs from an alternate reality on your WNKZ 4000. Unlike our other products and services, Five Folk Songs from an Alternate Reality is live transmitted from, well, 
you guessed it, an alternate reality. In this step-by-step music learning program, you will learn about a few of the many folkloric traditions, songs, and tales from a very special and beautiful place selected by our founder, Desmond Kodar. Please remember to fully attach the back of your device directly into your central nervous system and make sure that the prongs are fully secured in your head brain. Remember, incorrect preparation can cause your device and your body to become infected with viruses and Kodar technology takes no responsibility for mental anguish, injury, loss of body parts or death. Please bear with me while I load your lesson. Have a great practice. Please position your instrument correctly and prepare to receive the fourth folk song. Being so close to a large body of water, the village had a strong fishing industry. According to the marine inhabitants from the large body of water, it is actually a human industry. As the fishermen drop their lines, the fish will try and pull them down into the depths. After all, they too are just trying to feed their families. There is great confusion as to who is predator and who is prey, and, as it stands, the number of fish caught by humans, as opposed to the number of humans caught by fish, is exactly equal. Our good friend, a musician of the High Court from a certain historical period, arranged the then popular traditional fishing song, Fish 2, 3, 4, that would have been heard on all the fishing boats before the inhabitants decided that fishing was far too dangerous and the profession gradually fell out of public favour. So, uh, entirely different feel, entirely different yeah. route. Um, and uh, maybe, I mean, it, when I listen to uh, this, it, it's so uh, 
umbrella term like character and and wonderful and and fun and so maybe we can start there tell us about tell us about this yeah well this is a piece by my dear friend and uh constant collaborator cameron dodds and this is one of my favorite pieces to play in any situation. I love taking this piece and it, my own pieces as well into kind of more traditional uh, classical environments. Uh, it's, uh, you know, to give a little bit of background, even though I think the narration uh, explains quite a lot, uh, the idea of this uh, suite of pieces is that they are folk songs being beamed directly uh, into uh, your brain stem, as the narrator says, uh, from an alternate dimension. And, uh, you know, every time I play it, I create some beautiful, wiry, flashy helmet that I uh, get to wear like a crown. And uh, I have a rubber fish to stamp on and scream at. If you can hear the squeaking, I think, in the uh, in the excerpt, that's me stomping on a rubber fish. Um, there was, there was a really great moment when I was performing in Berlin and I realized that I had forgotten the rubber fish behind. So I had to go on a quest, uh, to pet <laughs> stores across Berlin, uh, to eventually find, uh, found a rubber shark. So that, that worked well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've, this piece is so much fun. Uh, I've done uh, another, uh, an opera, uh, with Cam as well, where I played a worm, uh, and I got to wear it, this incredible, uh, bulbous worm outfit. Uh, we, uh, did it in the Eden Project, uh, in Cornwall. Oh, so man. we were, yeah, traipsing amidst the gardens, uh, in, uh, worm outfits. And, uh, I made five children cry. <laughs> they just took one look at me in my outfit and just big started. Worm, big worm. Big worm. Yeah. Um, five children cry. A couple dogs went absolutely, you know, they, they went uh, off and, and uh, had to be dragged away uh, by their owners, but I had a great time. Um, so yeah, it, uh, I do this kind of stuff whenever I can. Any any chance somebody says, hey, do you want to dress up in a weird costume <laughs> and uh, just gallivant around? I, I take it without a second thought. And how much workshopping do you get to do? So, like, I mean, long-time collaborators, those are really special relationships um, yeah. where you get to know each other and you get to create for a specific person and, and interpret from a specific person. It's such a uh, nice thing to be able to to get to do and how much of this gets um talked about workshop is it presented to you as like a final thing do you get to chat when i work with cam it's never really a final thing um that's mm -hmm. one of the things i really like our about our relationship is that my uh my improv and uh kind of uh, take on things are always really important to him and so uh, with other people, I think it, it depends on, on the project. Uh, sometimes I, I've filled in as, you know, the second artist doing a role before, and, and that is, you know, less, uh, less free, but I still always try to take, um, take a moment to bring my own personality to whatever it is I'm doing. But yeah, workshopping with other collaborators is just kind of the, the most, fun part of it, I, I think for me, um, even, even doing things virtually, 
over the pandemic, uh, I was able to collaborate with a few other arts collectives to do some kind of multimedia pieces. That was a lot of just sending stuff back and forth, talking about uh, what sounded good, what we wanted to change, what things were missing. Um, working with Jasper is the exact same. We are always from day one listening to each other's thoughts and opinions about um, different aesthetics. She's going to be doing all of my videos for the album. And it's really exciting because we just have these long chats where, you know, she'll send me a voice message, <laughs> send me a voice message saying, I think we should have you riding a giant pill bottle in this uh, song, um, which, uh, and, you know, to which I say, this is great. Let's do it. Uh, so, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that most of my collaborations these days I take because I have a voice in. Hmm. I, I can imagine, I have this vision in, in a hundred years time, somebody's going to find the transcript of this piece and it's all <laughs> going to be there and they're going to look at the direction and it's going to say, okay, dress up as worm. And then it's going to have this music. And then halfway through, I could see the percussion panicking because he doesn't have a squeaky toy. You know, you can just sort of see this coming out in the future. I'd just love to be there. If I, Where's my squeaky toy? It would be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Royal Albert Hall. Royal Albert Hall. There you go. Yeah, London that would be great. That would be, that would yeah, be great. That would be fantastic. Yeah. 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 I mean, wouldn't that be cool if I could do a version of my uh, live show with a full orchestral backdrop and, and uh, have the uh, mechanical bull dressed up as a pill bottle on stage with me? That would be the best. <laughs> I think it would work brilliantly. I think we should propose it to the uh, to the people who do the last night of the proms. The proms that, that you know, chose that would be fantastic. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> One day. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be idiots not to be takers. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so yeah, this, this, so, so this is. I, I mean, I, I found this a lot of fun. I mean, this is just great fun, and and I can understand how this must be fantastic to actually do. I mean, in a way, I kind of feel this is more fun to do than as well, maybe than you know, watching it. You know, it's kind of like one of those things you want to get up and be, participate. I think which I kind of guess is, you know, nice if you've got open mic type things. Do people actually yeah. get up and participate with you ever? Do you ever do that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, most of the things I do aren't necessarily uh, crowd participation based. Um, well, when it comes to open mics, obviously there that's a bit of a different story because an open mic is really uh, um, a conversation between, uh, well... <laughs> As I've kind of looked, sorry, I have to transition. <laughs> sorry, taking a moment for my brain here. <clears throat> um, uh, yeah, so, you know, the, the audience performer relationship in an open mic is very different because most of the audience members, or a significant portion anyways, are also performers. So it's this really interesting space uh, that in many ways bypasses a lot of the boundaries um, and hierarchies of the traditional artist on stage versus the the audience members. So that's a really fun space to be working in and to be kind of immersed in. And I love hosting open mics. That's my biggest joy is creating a space uh, for, for people to experiment, um, especially 
queer spaces where people can really kind of dig into not just art, but um, art that looks at their own personal journeys, stories, the joys, and the messy stuff. So that is a really fun um, aspect of it. And it's also an aspect of it that is complex when it comes to um, ethics, because there is um, a history of participatory art being used by the powers that be to um, bandage social problems rather than looking at the source of problems. Mm. Um, you know, when I started my research into open mics, I was full of, uh, you know, maybe a little bit naively, just kind of Open mics are great. They're great for everybody. They're great for the institutions. They're great for the performers. They're great for the audience. Open mics are great. And then I realized, you know, I planned to be hosting open mics in large art institutions, but started digging into uh, things about, you know, the open mics and the DIY scene really uh, rely on a lot of uh, unpaid labor. And, you know, I had to take a serious look at... uh, who the research was for if the you know running open mics in in large arts institutions would be really benefiting the people performing or whether it would be a um a way for arts institutions to say look at us we're so diverse Mm. we're so awesome without doing any real structural change so that's the kind of space i've been really um kind of immersed in for the past year or so, especially since the pandemic and the loss of so much um, of our, you know, funding in, in the art scene. Um, there's, there's a lot of ethical ramifications about not paying artists. So, you know, it's, it's an amazing world. The DIY space is, is where I live and breathe and love, but I can also recognize that there um, there are problems with it that uh, need to be really seriously looked at. What What do you think that uh, kind of critical look feels like and looks like in in, in such a um, and this is this is me not uh, I mean I, I think I have an understanding of open mics but not being a researcher in open mics obviously. Do you think it's uh, possible to revamp given how uh, often ad hoc they are, or often how um, uh, completely participatory they are. That like everybody has a, a like a pretty valid opinion about how they run. How what does that look like? Well, I think for me it looks like uh, experimentation. Um, I'm going to be running some queer open mics over the next year, and I'm going to be looking at how you know, how different ones, well, I've already done a lot of field work at going to open mics, going to some queer open mics during the pandemic online that were incredible, incredible spaces. Um, So looking at those and also experimenting with the formats of uh, open mics and the ways that they can possibly run. And hopefully after that, I'll be able to come up with a format that, that might be that feels good for me to be running in a large arts institution. Cause that was, mm-hmm. um, that was always the plan to be kind of running these spaces, queer spaces in large arts institutions. Um, 
So I don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet. And I don't know if it's going to happen. You know, in the end, if I decide that I am not the right person to be running them, or that if I, if I can't find a way that I would feel good, even, even if the participants want to do it, even if the art institutions want to do it, if I don't feel good about it, then I, then the, you know, the end of my doctorate might be, I didn't do it. I, I, I didn't find a way to do it and that's okay. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I was supposed to be running, uh, an open mic at the Barbican center last summer. And, uh, just before that happened, uh, Barbican stories came out and Barbican stories is a, uh, 200 page book, uh, written by employees um, at the Barbican, um, people of color who have faced systematic racism within the Barbican Center. And after that came out, I realized that I, I wasn't, it wasn't the right time and I wasn't the right person to be uh, running a, a queer open mic because I couldn't uh, promise that the space would be uh, a safe and ethical one. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated space that I'm in right now, but I still love open mics. I love them and I love playing at them. I love hosting them. And, you know, I, people, people love them too. Other, other people that I talk to when I tell them that's kind of what I'm doing right now, get so excited about the idea. I I mean, there seems to me that you, there is a, a kind of a, um, a societal issue here which you're going to always run up against which is in a society which we have which is basically got a fair amount of racism a fair amount of homophobia a fair amount of transphobia a fair amount of and we can list off a whole load of these actually trying to do anything is kind of kind of difficult um you know if you try and eliminate all of them i mean and i guess you're running up against this kind of barrier of trying to negotiate your way into a space which is free from all of these things. Yeah. I think for me, the the difference with the research versus just putting on something because I want to do it is that um, the re- because I'm a researcher and because I am also, a, I have a studentship, I have a power imbalance that, you know, this is some, or I feel like there's currently um, a, a power imbalance that I need to sort out. And, you know, I can't solve everything in my research. And if I was just kind of running an open mic at a local pub, you know, and not trying to turn it into something else, I think, you know, it would be a bit, a bit different with how I feel about it. But right now, I think my main concern is that I am not using other people for my own gain especially in a space like a queer open mic where people share everything from joy to trauma. Mm. And, um, you know, I have been, I've been lucky to be in beautiful spaces that uh, have allowed me to share those same things. And that's the kind of space that I want to create for other people. And uh, it just needs to be in a way that I'm not using them. I think this is something we've kind of touched on before in our programs about about uh, queer community, I guess, which is which which I guess we all feel is a 
a little bit different to, to non-queer community space in the sense that we have this more, I feel, open sort of um, ability to communicate and and feel, you know, how other people are affected by what we do. Um, and I kind of guess this is part of it as well, you know, feeling comfortable with with being making a space which everybody can feel comfortable in and be themselves for whatever reason, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is kind of, I don't know, maybe something that's, that's a burden as well as a positive thing that, that we do. Um, and, it, and it kind of makes it difficult as well as exciting and fun and safe. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, uh, it's an honor to create space for people and that honor should be taken seriously. And I think it's a, it's an honor and an excitement to create spaces that are complex and that are fraught with uh, intense conversations. And uh, it isn't simple and it isn't uh, cut and paste or easy. It's, it's much more interesting to me to hear from people who uh, work in these really complex spaces. And it's much more interesting for me. Uh, I think that's, you know, one of the joys of being queer is, getting to be in these really difficult, joyous, traumatic, intense, deeply sad, deeply uh, happy spaces that, that coexist in so many uh, layers at all at the same time. And it does take a lot of unpacking and it takes a lot of um, piecing apart what is uh, right and who's the right person for it. And as you say, why me in this space? maybe not me in this space and it's <laughs> part of the fun uh, of, of doing that. But uh, it's just, it's so nice to hear about your research and so nice to hear about um, how you uh, bring your own creative practice into that uh, research side. It's, it's always fascinating uh, as someone who works in like research creation to like talk about those crossovers. And uh, maybe I see this as a, as a, a summation uh, to our to our conversation as we as we hit uh, hit our time kind of kind of thing <laughs> that it's it's nice to hear from you and it's so lovely to hear your music and it's so lovely to hear your thoughts about uh, performance and how you create but also how you make space for other people to create and you uh, build these spaces for uh, queer open mics to to exist and and the conversation around that so. Thank you very, very much for, for telling us and, and telling our listeners about everything that you do. Oh, thank you so much for giving me the space to tell you about uh, what I do. It's been fantastic. And, and I think there's uh, a lot more to talk about. So, so maybe, uh, you know, when your albums come out and a bit later on, we'll, we might get you back and chat more. I'd love that. Yeah. Um, it'll be hopefully out in... I think the winter originally was supposed to be out this summer, but then we all caught COVID during recording. So, you know, that's, that's what it's like right now. And <laughs> you, you do what you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You'll make it. You It'll get out. Can. It'll be there. It'll be there. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> well, we're certainly happy to update people when, when it does. Oh, yeah. thanks. That's awesome. Thanks. It's thanks again, Sarah. So nice to get to know both of you. This has been really delightful.
So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.